That's good. All right. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And I believe it's all I need. That's right. All right. Matthew 16. Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. You know, just a reminder, those Pharisees and Sadducees were a part of the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers. Everybody, you know, were supposed to follow them. They were the ones who knew everything. They were the godly ones. And and yet, look at their heart. And really, for two separate sects, they never, they never got along any other time. They totally believed differently about the resurrection, about the Old Testament. I mean, they just had so many differences, and yet they got together on this. They wanted to get Jesus. And so he replied, you know, how, you know they asked him for a sign from heaven. Whether they didn't think that his miracles, you know, that maybe they thought that, you know, those weren't the real thing because, well, we know Pharaoh and Moses, remember they, during the days of Pharaoh, he had, you know, he had men that could do tricks, you know, he could change the staff into a snake and that kind of thing. So there are powers out there. We know there are different powers out there. So whether they were thinking that maybe a sign from heaven would be more authentic, I don't know. But Jesus could see their heart and knew their whole point was testing him. And he replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning today, it will be, it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. He's saying, look at you got a sign from heaven there. It's right in the sky, and you know how to interpret that. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And what he was trying to say there is, you know the Old Testament so well. You, you quote it word for word, and yet everything that was prophesied about me you don't see the signs of the times is standing right in front of you. Everything that you studied and take such pride in, I'm right here. And you can't even read that. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign. Boy, that kind of got me. A, a, a wicked and adulterous nation wants signs. If you have to have a sign not that some signs aren't good, you know, they're, aff- they're really affirming, but, but when you constantly rely on signs, what does that mean? You're lacking what? You're lacking faith. But none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Now, in Matthew 12, he talked about Jonah again. Remember, um, he said in, in so many words, he said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he's introducing that that analogy of, of his, his own crucifixion and burial and resurrection. So he's starting to put that in there. And I know that I was asked a couple of times by people for 
um, an explanation of three days and three nights, you know, because if you count it out, you know, we have the three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but we only have two nights if we count Friday night and Saturday night, you know, so he says three days and three nights. Well, I'm just going to tell you what I found and you can, you can take it or leave it, but it makes sense to me because in that day they had a different kind of, their day started after sundown the night before. So Friday really was um, Thursday night. So, so the first day is Thursday night and Friday, even though Jesus was buried on Friday, but you're talking about the day started. So actually their, their so-called days started with night. So that was Thursday night and Friday. So that's day one. And then day two, of course, is Friday night and, and, um, or Thursday, yeah, Friday night and Saturday. And then the third is Saturday night and Sunday. So does that makes kind of good sense, doesn't it? So I don't ever, I mean, sometimes we just have to accept the Bible for what it says, even though we don't quite understand it. But, but that helped me a little bit to understand the way they told time and the way they called out their days and nights. So, all right, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. No, I know so many of you are smiling now because you know what's coming. And you so, and I did too, you so want to say, oh, and they're so consumed about that bread, you know? And after all, and, and to me, I smiled because I thought, if that doesn't show how quickly we look to our being comfortable and happy and self, how quick we do that. Now, I, I'll tell you, I think I saw three things in the disciples, but before I get too mad at them um, and upset with them, I think this is what happens to me when I fall amok. I see an ignorance. I see an ignorance to, to not, you know, thinking. I mean, the ignorance is that I don't know something. And I see that if you really know him, you're not ignorant to who he is and what he can do. So I think we see an ignorance. I think we see a, a, a disbelief. So it does show that they, we're talking about spiritual growth here. And I think that's why we can see ourselves. And sometimes we just have a tendency to fall to these things. And it shows that we need to grow and mature more. If ever we have to be in God's word and be learning, this is what we need to grow and mature so that we don't fall into these traps. And I think they're traps. We wouldn't fall into ignorance if we knew. We wouldn't fall in disbelief if we really believed. And the third one is they forget. And I think sometimes I forget too. I forget what he did for me a year ago, six months ago, last week. And these three things really cause us to get in it. I think it is a trap. And so now look at Jesus says, and look how he introduces it. He says two words. And what are those two words? Be careful. He knows our human nature. He knows that we go back to our self. So, so without effort, that that's just the natural pull 
I, I, want, I want things nice, and I don't want to suffer, and I, I, I want to be comfortable and happy. And he says, be careful. And then he says, be on your guard. So to me, that was another important phrase. Be careful, because you know trouble's luring here. Because your human nature just wants to just extend itself, and your natural human sucking wants to go back to your own self and that. But he says, no, I want you to be on your guard. You got to be watching for this. You got to know that that's the natural tendency. You're so consumed about that. And remember, he said, it's not what you put in your stomach that makes you who you are. It's what you put in your heart. And so he's trying to get them to go beyond the, the, the physical. And he's trying to develop their hearts so that they will go more to their trust instead of the logic of physical. So he said, be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So the way he put that, it's all part of Jesus' teaching mechanism. And to show them where our natural tendencies are to go, they heard yeast and all they thought about was, oh, no, we're going to go hungry. See what we do? And he said, I want you to get beyond that about just about satisfying your physical. I want to stretch you. So they discussed this among themselves and said, oh, it's because we didn't bring bread. And he's listening to this, you know. And he says, you of little faith. Boy, he called it for what it was. You of little faith. Why are you talking about yourselves, about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Why should you even think about that? If I could feed 5,000, am I concerned about whether um, you brought a loaf of bread for the 13 of us? See, so again, the falling into the trap of the ignorance, the unbelief, and the forgetfulness, he says, I have got to keep growing you up because right now you are not there. But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood. You know, he's Jesus is so patient, and he knows we're on a journey. He knows that we're trying to um, grow up spiritually, that our trust is gets bigger than our emotions, that we go to him and in the realization of who he is, and we stand on the promises quicker than we fall to our doubts and our fears. He knows that we're in that process. He knows it takes time. And we can be very grateful that he is, but he is expecting us to be catching it a little quicker. That when, when we, that as we grow spiritually, that we start when, when the questions of life or when, you know, when our tendencies are to go right to our own physical all the time about our own comforts, he wants us 
It's like you could see it on their faces when you watch. Oh, yeah, I get it. He wants that to become quicker and quicker. Because the longer that you and I start wallowing in that question and doubt and fear, the, the longer we do that, the, the farther away from him we get. So he wants us to be maturing enough that that time span between our questions and our doubts becomes less and less. We start going to him, oh, yeah, that's right, that that comes quicker. So that was an important little time. I think it, that little section from 1 to 12 was about stretching us to get beyond our physical, that, that we want deeper, that we want to, um, we don't want to keep going back to our own self all the time and our own physical, and, and ju- just to trust that, what, is, what does the Lord's Prayer tell us? He, he will take care of our needs today. Oh, yeah, that's right. So what's the point of worry, doubt, and fear? When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, you know, I'm starting to see that when he takes them to certain regions, there's a reason for that. You know, last week we saw him, he took, they went to Tyre and Sidon, and we saw that he went there for what? To, To meet this woman that he knew was learning about who he was, saw her humble attitude, saw that her complete trust and faith in him, accepted who she was. And it it was such a beautiful story. So he went into that Gentile territory for this one woman. Now he goes to Caesarea Philippi, so I've, I, I question that now. So I, I went and I read up on what was Caesarea Philippi. And that too was the worst as far as evil and, and idol sacrifice and pagan worship. I mean, gross things. Gross things. I mean, sexual episodes with goats. I mean, the more I read, the more it just was so vulgar. And you think, why would Jesus take them to that, that just that most ungodly place for this very important question? So when he says, okay, what, what's, what's the word on the street? Who are people saying that I am? Who do you hear? Oh, then you hear, oh, well, you know, some say, you know, that you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say that you're one of the other prophets. And really, when you look at those those men, you know that was that, that was good. I mean, those were good men. All of those men stood for the truth, and they didn't care what the cost was. So, I mean that that was those were good men there. However, no matter how good any human being is, do they ever take the place? of Jesus no and we have to think about that we think it's so easy to say no of course not but sometimes we do know does anybody deserve a pedestal no no human being deserves a pedestal now these men were wonderful they stood for for the Lord they didn't care what happened to them they stood against rulers 
They were good, strong men, but yet they weren't Jesus. So then Jesus stopped and, you know, just asked them, okay, it's time, it's time, because I'm, I'm trying to show you miracles, I'm trying to show you and get you involved in, in a, a boat that you think you're going to drown, and, and the walking on the water, I mean, look at, look what they've seen. He says, okay, now you should spiritually be getting out of your ignorance, out of your own belief, out of your forgetfulness, and you should acknowledge who I am. Who am I? Who am I to you? And that is such a big question because how you answer it, and you can say the words, but remember words are cheap. He knows whether you mean it from your heart because if you do say you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, that changes everything about you. It changes everything about me, how I get up in the morning, how I react to different difficult people, how my thoughts, my deeds, who, what's my emphasis about? Where do I get my worth? Who's my day going to be about today? Am I, am I willing to submit and surrender to the one because I believe he is the Christ, he is the son of the living God? That's why I say this answer is the foundation. That's why we ended our singing time this morning with on Christ, the solid rock I stand. There is no other ground. Everything else will sink us. So when Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus' reaction when Peter said that, I mean, you know, when you think about that is the ultimate. Jesus is waiting for that answer. That answer from our heart. But then in the same chapter, you're going you're gonna to see how quickly things can change. So that's why we need to be careful. We've got to be on our guard. We have an enemy but right now, he says, he is thrilled. He loves this answer from Peter. And he replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Do you know that in and of ourselves, we, we wouldn't even know how desperately we need a Savior do you know that in and of ourselves, we would still just be floundering, trying to make life happen and, and try to handle life in our own strength? That's how incapable we are. That's how natural our sinful nature is. We just would try to be doing it ourselves. And so Jesus is always trying to remind, do you know that that right answer, Peter, came because my father, through his spirit, gave you the words. And I just have to, you know, what is the Holy Spirit's number one job? I know we go over this many times, but his number one job is to draw people to Jesus. Now, I know that once you come to the cross of Christ, he comes to indwell. But unless, we're, if, where is he with people that, that don't believe or never accepted Jesus as their Savior? Where's the Holy Spirit? Oh, believe me, he is all around. And he is perched on their shoulders trying to get them to believe. 
through all different kinds of mediums. That's his number one job because it's not, it's not the Father's will that any perish. Jesus, he sent his son for everybody. So he gave his spirit to go all through this earth to somehow. That's why when we get to the end of Matthew, you're going to see that one of the greatest signs of the times before Jesus returns is that all will have heard. They all will have been given a chance to make that choice. And I think that's why in that, in that section, the next section, we're going to be taught. That's why Jesus kind of goes on about this because the Holy Spirit then comes after you, you make a decision. Like Paul said, here's the formula, okay? The Holy Spirit sees to it that you hear this gospel story. Well, then now it's up to you. Are you going to choose to believe it or not? And then the third step is, is if you say yes, then that spirit comes in and dwells with you. What a gift Paul calls him. Because it's not just about salvation. It's about how you live. And the Holy Spirit was given so that we then could hear the right answers, that we could understand Jesus being the word. We could hear and understand the words on the page, how it pertains to us. God, Jesus is just making sure that we see that we won't even, we won't get this until, until we are willing to let the Spirit show us this truth and that we stop doing it ourselves and we finally submit and surrender to him. And then he goes on and he says, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church now, he is not, and I think this is where sometimes um, Peter gets misunderstood like he was put on a pedestal that day. Now, I know the Lord is going to use Peter mightily, but again, no one deserves a pedestal. That's not what Jesus was doing here. He was saying, Peter, I am going to use you, and I'm going to build my church on the statement that you just said. I'm the Messiah, I am the son of the living God, and that's what I will build my church on, and I am going to use you, Peter. I'm going to use you mightily. But I think sometimes, now I know that our Catholic friends and our believers, I know they, they think that Peter was the first pope, and so I don't know for sure about that, but I also know that he does not deserve a pedestal, but the, but the one I'm most concerned about is that so many people use Peter as, as a joke. You know, have you heard jokes about, oh, when we get to heaven, we'll see Peter standing at the pearly gates. Have you ever heard those jokes? Like it's Peter that, that has been given the, um, the ability to be, be able to tell people if they can come in or stay out. Now, is that a lie? That's a lie. So we, gotta, we take that, and we know that Jesus has given Peter an important job, and it's because Peter was the one that dared say, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And he said, that's what I'm going to build on. That's got to be the bottom line, where everybody's got to come to grips with that. And then... And then he says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I, I think after studying about what Caesarea Philippi was, I think that's why he brought him to that area because it looked like evil had absolutely taken over. There was no more of an ungodly place on this earth. And he said, you know what? 
Even all this, all the power of evil that's here cannot stand against the power, my power. Because I'm sure that many would look at that ungodly area and think, boy, that has got to be hell on earth. And so to be able to say that, and I will, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And then he says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, I'm going to give you, and, I, and whether he's talking to just Peter or whether he's talking to all the disciples because they're going to be turning to apostles, and he says, I want you to know that I'm giving you the authority. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. We know that in Acts chapter 2, Peter stood in front of that massive crowd and was able to speak in any language that people needed to hear it in. And we know 3,000 came to Jesus and it wasn't just but days before that he was denying Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, you're, you know, I think on that Pentecost day, I think Peter remembered this is what Jesus was talking about. He's going to empower me with the authority to stand and be courageous. That's why when you say that and the Holy Spirit grabs your heart and you believe it with your heart, I'll tell you, it changes everything. Look at it, it's changed Peter. In, in Acts chapter 10, Peter then was used to bring this, this gospel to Gentiles, and I'm sure that was a massive surprise for Peter. So yes, Peter was going to be used in a very big way, and yet I think he's talking to all of us. He is able to use his power in us to be able to communicate this gospel. But how far are you on your journey? How, how committed are you to the answer to that question of who you say I am? Because maybe you can say it with the words, but maybe you're falling into the trap of ignorance because you really don't really know. Maybe it's your in your unbelief, you really don't think that you can stand on those promises. And maybe you've just forgotten what he's done for you in the past. And boy, I'll tell you, that does change you when you start sinking versus when he said, I'm going to give you the authority to stand strong and courageous for those non-negotiables that change your life. So I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling because I went to Psalm 119 and I saw that God's word stands firm in the heavens. God's word stands firm. So to me, does that say that God's word changes according to the culture of the day? No. God's word stands firm in the heavens. It does not change. It's unfortunate. I, I, I wanted to get a new Bible, and I um, tried the, I just went, you know, got a, a new Bible, and it was the NIV version that I had always been using, and, and I started studying from it, and I thought, man, this, this, isn't, this isn't right. I don't like this. This is, went and searched out, found out that the NIV has been revised. So I'm just warning you, don't ever buy an NIV that has a printing after 1984, 
And that just scared me because I think that even the Bible, even people who are revising the Bible to the culture of the day. And I'm thinking the word stands firm in the heavens. So I think what he's saying to Peter, to the disciples, he's saying to them, the authority that you stand on and, and what, what, whatever you bind on earth. In other words, I, I looked that up too and I found out that that means whatever you forbid, whatever you prohibit. If you say, it's like, it's the thou shalt not Does that ever change? Those Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, does that ever change? No. So he says, I want you to be able to go out there with the authority saying that God's word doesn't change. And when I say I forbid you or I prohibit you from doing that, I mean it. That doesn't change no matter what the culture is. And what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, what I say, what I allow, what I say to set you free, that too doesn't change. So that means salvation is found in none other, none other. That is what sets you free. There is no other way that doesn't change. So I think what he's telling them, what he's telling us is don't you dare get caught again in a trap of believing that we have to change according to the culture. What is bound on earth will be bound in heaven, and what is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. This gospel message, my commandments, my promises, they don't change. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And I know that sounds kind of funny. I mean, why wouldn't you want them to share that? You know, But I think there's a couple of reasons. One, of course, is timing. We know that, that Jesus isn't going to go to the cross one second early or late, and so it could be a timing. But the more I got into this in, in the context of this chapter and what I think he's really trying to get a hold of us is in the whole spiritual growth thing is until you are sure... You can't bring anybody farther than what you are. And I think he's saying, I cannot send you. I mean, and, and Paul talks about this. Like, not every one of you um, should be teachers. I know you think you should be teachers, but not all of you should be teachers. And what he's bottom line saying, not, not that, that by any means I feel so adequate, but the thing, the, he says, you get to the point where you are so sure and if you're not sure, you know, that comes, that comes across. If you're not so sure, if you, if you don't quite believe your product, you're not going to be able to sell it in the intensity that it needs to be sold. And he knows that his guys, as much as he loves them, and they've come a long way, but he's saying, you know, you're just not quite ready. We've got to go through um, Matthew 17, 18, 19, 20. We've got a few more things to go through. And so I think, again, he's saying not that if he gives us an opportunity to be able to stand for Christ, but I think he does want you and I to make sure that we do know what we're talking about because we are convinced that you've answered the question, I've answered the question, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God, and I'm sold on that. 
Otherwise, we're up here wishy-washy and, and we can get, you know, people can come at you. But when you say the Bible says, God says, he wants us sure. He wants us sold. I mean, even up to his crucifixion, I mean, look at with, with Peter, you know, look what happens you, you, when people come at you and and it's so easy to comply and to compromise and look at even to the point of denying so that you're not identified because you're afraid of what it's going to do to you and what they're going to think of you. But the time he sends these 12 out, they are so sure that they will take whatever and everyone, you know, everyone was martyred or John was put on the Isle of Patmos. Well, you got to be sold on your subject. You got for Paul and Silas to be able to sit into jail after being beaten and flogged and all that, to be able to sing hymns, to get their eyes so fixed on Jesus so that they wouldn't, they had to be careful and be on guard because their human nature was saying, hey, I didn't sign up for this. So we have to be so sure. We have to use the tools to keep us on track. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. I know we read that over and over, but that is so sad. Who is, who is Jesus greatest troublemakers the people you least expect the religious people I mean you don't you're expecting them because they know the Old Testament so well the sign was right there I mean how much more do you need and they're the ones that tricked them and did whatever it took to get them to the cross And he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. You know that word killed. Peter had just said, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. In his mind, he doesn't associate this son of the living God with being killed. And so look at that, that quick, because he went back to his physical reasoning Instead of just hearing what Jesus said, you know, every time Jesus told them about that he was going to be killed, he told them that he would he'd be raised in three days. He told them that. He never said, I'm going to be killed and left it at that. He told them every time that I'll be raised in three days. Now, if they would have dared listen to the whole thing, they would have maybe gotten excited about that. But they only heard that he was going to be killed, and that was in their, their reasonable thinking. And that stumped him. And so Peter, okay, then when you are in that ignorance and in that unbelief and in that, that forgetfulness, guess what happens? The enemy can just get right in there. You got a big old crack in your armor. And it doesn't take much. And right then and there, you can tell Peter really didn't believe he was the Christ, the son of the living God, because anybody in their whole right mind that believed he was the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God, would you tell him he was wrong? 
So again, that just shows, you know, we have, this is a learning process through experiences, through tough times, but he wants the, us to be quicker at acknowledging. Right here we saw Peter saying that one day, and then the ne very next day, practically, he's saying, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. And boy, Jesus' reaction, he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He identified. If you think Jesus was just tempted back there in Matthew when we started this, Remember after the baptism and then, then that by the Spirit led him into, into the desert to be tempted? If you think that that was the end of Jesus' temptation, this ought to prove to you right there. I mean, one of his, one of his beloved disciples was talking in the language that he wanted to hear because in his human nature, he's saying, boy, I sure wish that that was true. But he also knew that was the enemy. But then he said to Peter, you're stumbling black to me. Oh, man. I'm sure that broke Peter's heart to hear that. But you know what? We can be a stumbling block. I mean, I, I know I use this illustration, but and it, it is so minor compared to this, but maybe you can see the point. But, you know, when you are, I can remember one day when my boys were small and I was just, I mean, they had just gone to me and I was at my wit's end and I just let them have it. And, and boy, I, you know, my tone, my, my volume, my everything. And, you know, they were, they were probably, you know, they're, I don't, I don't think they were scared, but, but yet, you know, I'm out of control. Let's just put it that way. I'm out of control. They're watching their mother out of control. And then the phone rings and I went, oh, hi, how are you? And I, I'll never forget Chad's look because his, his jaw just dropped. Like, how did you do that? <laughs> now that day I was a stumbling block to my children. And you know what? That can cause such confusion in their little minds. You say one thing and you act another. How can you do that? And I think Jesus knew, and that's why he's going he's gonna to go into this whole thing about if you're going to be one of mine, you're going to wear that big sign Christian on your back because you want everybody to know you're a Christian. He said, I want you to make sure you know what that means. That's why he said, you're, you're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Isn't that just what we've been talking about? You're so quick about you want what you want, what's comfortable and happy, and I have such a greater picture. wonder if Peter got as well. We wouldn't have a Savior today. So, I mean, that, that whole thing is essential. The more we think about just the, what I want, and we don't let, let God have his way to do his thing, I wonder how much we've missed. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, Mark put it this way. He, he kind of he kind of said it, Jesus' words, like, if you want to be a follower of mine, that's how Mark 8 puts it. But here in Matthew 16, Matthew writes, if anyone would come after me, same thing. And it starts with that little two-letter word, if, which then shows you, you have a, you got a choice here. And if your choice is to wear the label Christian, 
and you're so quick to tell everybody, I just want to make sure that you realize that Christian means you chose to follow Christ. You chose to follow him. How quick we could put that on our back and we can make sure everybody knows. But he said, if you really want to be a follower of mine, if you wear that name Christian, then look at, he said, you must. You must. And I looked King James. I looked every version that I could get my hands on just to make sure that there was no other word and every version used the word must. In other words, there's just no other way. You're going to wear that label Christian. You've chosen to follow Christ. Then this is what you must do. Um, No questions. No other way. This is what he has said. If you, in view of what he has done for you, then this is what you must do for him. You must deny yourself. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Last night... I, I have a, quite a few men that come on Monday night with their wives. Beautiful sight. And last night, I had a man come for the very first time with his wife. And I no sooner got home, and I got a call, and she said, this lesson generated, and they come from Grand Rapids. And she said, that, that generated all the way home quite the conversation and my husband said, and I didn't even realize, well, I knew that I'd make this statement, but I didn't know there again how profound the Holy Spirit is to just use our borrow our bodies to say, to say the, the profound. Because I remember saying, once you've come to the cross of Christ, it is no longer about you. It is about him. It is all about him. And he said, this is what you must do. And I think that's why, Paul, that's why these verses are starting to make more and more sense. It is no longer I that lives. It's Christ that lives in me. Now I'm getting, he said, this is what you must do. That's why this is a big question. Who do you say that I am? Because now you wear, you make that choice to say, I want to follow Christ, and this is what you must do. It is not about you anymore. You deny yourself. You submit to his authority. You submit to his perfect will. You submit to his plan for you. You submit to your sufferings because he knows what you and I need to get us where we need to be. You submit. You take up your life. You take up the cross of your life because every one of us has a disappointment. Every one of us has a change of plans. Every one of us has a crisis. Every one of us has something. And he said, if you want to be a follower of mine, then this is what you must do. It is not about you anymore. It is about you just taking up your life and daring to follow me because I am your father you stand on the promise of who I am then you know that I would never take you down the wrong path I wouldn't do that doesn't that just show how far we need to keep going because until we are so ready to submit to his will that we never question his ways but he said that's where I want to get you to 
that it is not about you. It has taken up your life and let me use it and you just follow me because I will never take you down the wrong path for whoever, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. You've heard a bazillion sermons on that, I know, but bottom line, he's saying, take a look, see how many, oh, you can say, yeah, you are the Christ and the living God, yep, yep, but I'm putting all my eggs into this basket of my human life. All, it's, it's all about me, it's achieving, it's, it's making sure I'm comfortable and happy, achieving where, where I want to be, and all, every, you put all your work and effort, it's all about this life. Oh, I'm not coming to church. Yeah, what a day that will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can I don't mean to be flippant, but yeah, there's a lot of times we do that because he says, I'm trying to get you to the point to see how serious this is. This is what you must do. And if you put all your eggs into this life, even though James says it's a mist here today, gone tomorrow, but you put all your efforts into this life, what does he say? I've got a whole never, another definition of life. And he says, you know, you think life is this little short-term thing here. The life he's talking about, he says, you you just concerned about this little mist of a life here? Well, you're going to lose the life that I have for you. And what is he talking about? The eternal life. You're going you're gonna to miss it. You're going to lose it. You know, that should rattle your cage a little bit. I mean, because that is, you're going to lose it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord's going to enter glory. Only those who do the will of our Father. And the Father's will is following Christ. That's the Father's will. And unless you do that, this is not, this is not just something we can turn on and off. So, you know, to Tom's, you know, to Tom's answer, am I, I, I got to learn how to, you know, maybe settle down and maybe my, you know, a little bit, but, but I am not going to backtrack because this is too important that I think a lot of church people don't even realize. And they never really circled in their Bibles the word must. And that I will lose my life. I will lose my eternal life. And then, but then he always, I love the way he does this because he, 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 he gets down to business. He makes sure we see it and we almost tremble in our boots. I, he does that on purpose. But he comes back as, but whoever loses his life for me if you are willing to do what he says and you're willing to, to put yourself aside and you're willing to be used by him, you will find life. And the thing is, it's not just what Linda is on her way to see. It's the abundant life now, the satisfied life. I will give you life here like you don't even realize. Life abundant and then, of course, the hope of life with him forever. And then he asks the question, makes you think. He says, what good will it be for a man if he gains this whole world? He's got all his eggs in one basket. Oh, he has achieved everything that he wanted. The thing is, if you've ever seen anybody achieve earthly 
anything earthly, they're never condemned with it. They might have thought that they achieved what they wanted, but they're still along. They still need more. They still want more. And he says here, what good will it be if a man gains this whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Yeah, you can't buy this. And then he, he says this, verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come. And this is why we're saying it will be worth it all this morning because here's your it will be worth it all verse. You and I can live despite when we deny ourselves. That's not an easy thing to do, you know, to deny yourself, to let him have his way. And, and you know, no big pats on the back, no a lot of credit. Not You know, you have, it is not about you anymore. It's about him. When we are, when we are self-centered people, that's not easy to do. He knows it's going to be a hard work. But he comes back and he says, oh, let me just tell you, that is going to be so worth it because the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Yeah. Don't you just love the way that song says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus all trials will seem so small. That's what Paul said. That's scripture. Paul says, someday when we get to glory, we're going to say, is that all I had to go through? <laughs> nothing. It was nothing. And we put all of our eggs in one basket for a while. And we, we started, we were ignorant. We, did, we didn't believe and, and we forgot. But, you know, and there we sunk. Thought it was so big. And yet, look, when I get there, I'm going to say, is that all I had to go through to get all this? One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So knowing that that's going to happen, standing on the promise of that that's going to happen, you and I can bravely run this race. Knowing that someday he will reward each person according to what he's done. And then he closed this chapter by Jesus said, I tell you the truth. And I always love it when he says that because then I, I just can't wait to hear what he's going to say. I tell you the truth. No doubt. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In other words, Peter James and John are going to be able next week to see Jesus in that promise. Remember, we've talked about the kingdom of heaven. It starts in a relationship with Jesus, and then it gradually goes until the fact that the, it becomes a place where then we will be with him. The transformed body. So there, the day's going to come that there's some of you right there, he says, that are going to actually see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And he's saying, just hold on, would you? And all I can say is there's going to be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness, no more pain, no more parting over there. And forever we will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that's going to be. That's the way this ends today. He said, that's the way you live. You deny yourself. You take up your life's cross and you follow him because he's going to lead you right to that place. I'll tell you, that's a powerful way to live. Have a good week.